celebrating communion today, and we'll partake of that at the end. But I want to teach today about communion, that communion is worship. It's not just some sort of technicality that's thrown in there, and we get the little piece of bread, and we get the little cup orange juice or whatever we use today. Whatever on sale, that's what we use. I want you to know that. As long as it's red and on sale, it's good for us. But it's a lot more. And I don't think a lot of Christians understand the depth, the importance of the Lord's Supper, of taking communion together, and what it's all about. And of course, one sermon is not going to do it all justice, but I'm hoping to do some justice to it today. Uh, anybody who's been part of our church for any length of time knows that we do take communion serious. All right? And that means we don't look serious when we're taking it. We look at each other. How serious can you look when you're taking that little cup of juice? Serious is in the word. That's where it's at. The seriousness of communion, like anything else we believe in Christianity, is found in the word of God. And we bow our hearts before that word. We do everything we can to live under it, to live it to love it, to enjoy it, to obey it, to respect it, to give Christ honor. That's how we take communion and every other doctrine the Bible teaches us serious. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I have to admit before that after one year, I finally upgraded my iPad and it's a mess. I've lost all my sermon material. It's all gone. I can't find it, um, but I want you to know this one lives in me. This sermon, all sermons should live in us. Some live in us more than others. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Hopefully I'll get there. Hey, there we are. I will read 17 to 34. I'll make some comments, an analogy, and then I will preach. Starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Me and Paul saying, I'm not happy with you. Okay? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on a night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. However, therefore, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and even some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you eat and drink, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give these directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you always for just so loving us so much and revealing to us the blind spots that we still have, sometimes as a church, sometimes as individual believers, God. We come here, Father God, for instruction, for teaching, for encouragement. Help us to live out this wonderful faith that Christ paid for with his broken body and his shed blood. Every moment, every torturous moment, and he paid for it in hell. Let us be aware, God, that the hope we have in our hearts, the closeness we have with you, is because Christ took the wrath upon himself, God. Let this be the prism we see all of our life from now, that Christ gave his life for us in Jesus' name. Let me start with a little story here. It's actually not a story. I'm going to pick this up halfway through the article. It's about Americans not eating at home anymore. I grew up in an era where we ate at home. My father was there, my mother was there, my brother was there, my sister was there, and I was there. If not seven nights a week, at least six nights a week, the family ate together. Now, we know that is not true anymore because I guess more things are important than the family. And I think America's showing it. I think America's paying a price for it, amongst other things. Listen to this article. Sadly, Americans rarely eat together anymore. In fact, the average American eats one in every five meals in their car. One in four Americans eats at least one fast food meal every single day. And the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than one out of five days a week. It's a pity that so many Americans are missing out on what could be a meaningful time with loved ones. But it's even more than that. Not eating together also has a quantifiably negative effects, both physically and psychologically. Using data from nearly three-quarters of the world's countries, a new analysis from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, found that students who do not regularly eat with their parents are significantly more likely to be truant at school. The avid truancy rate in two weeks before the International Program for International Student Assessment, a test administered to 15-year-olds by the OECD and used in the analysis as a measure for absenteeism, was about 15% throughout the world on average. 
but it was nearly 30% when pupils reported they didn't often share meals with their families. Children who, who do not eat dinner with their parents are twice as likely Children who do not eat dinner with their parents at least twice a week also are 40% more likely to be overweight compared to those who do, as outlined as a research presentation given at the European Congress on Obesity in Bulgaria. On the contrary, children who do eat dinner with their parents five or more days a week have less trouble with drugs, less trouble with alcohol, eat healthier, show better academic performance, and report being closer with their parents than children who eat dinner with their parents less often. Accordingly to a study conducted by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University, there are two big reasons for these negative effects associated with not eating meals together. The first is simply that we when we eat out, especially at inexpensive fast food and takeout places that most children go to when they're not eating with their family, we tend to eat very unhealthy things. The second reason is that eating alone can be alienating. The dinner table can act as a unifier, a place of community. Sharing a meal is an excuse to catch up with one another, to talk with each other. One of the few times where people in the family are happy to put aside their work and take time out of their day one for another. After all, it is rare that Americans grant ourselves pleasure over productivity. Americans work 220 more hours per year, more over Frenchmen and the rest of the European nation. In many countries, mealtime is treated as sacred. In France, for instance, while it is acceptable to eat by yourself, one should never rush a meal. A frenzy salad muncher on the metro invites dirty glass from everybody else. And employees are given at least an hour for lunch. In many Mexican cities, townspeople will eat together with friends and family in central parks and areas and town squares. In Cambodia, villages spread out on colorful mats and bring food to share with loved ones, like a potluck dinner. In her book, Eating Together, Alice Julia argues that dining together can radically shift people's perspectives. It reduces people's perception of inequality, and diners tend to view those of different races, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds with more equal, as more equal than they would in other social scenarios. We see here the data is in. But before the data was in of all the negative consequences that come when families don't eat together, Paul already told us what happens when you come together in the wrong manner. You could be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. We see that God presides over the meal. He presides over communion. I'm going to explain to you what it was 2,000 years ago as opposed to what it is today. But there are serious negative effects when we don't associate with each other as a family, or as a family of God, when we do come together, but our inner attitudes are a mess. That's what it means to examine yourself, okay? So I'll, I'll get into that later. That's what it means. It's not being, are you perfect? I can tell you, let me a little hint. There's no one here perfect. Okay? Everyone has to examine themselves, especially the pastors and the leaders of the church, before we partake, every one of us. It's talking about the inner attitudes we have towards each other. That's what it's about. 
This is a serious, serious matter. So serious that Paul says, because you don't do it, and because you eat and drink and judgment on yourself, some of you are sick, some of you are ill, and some have died. Well, that's a serious accusation. That's the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul's looking at the Corinthian church and goes, yeah, you're a mess. Sure did this thing is going on. You think God's happy with this? That Christ shed his body and the blood and, and one's getting drunk and one's eating all the food and, and when the people who are poor finally get to the church, there's nothing left over for them? You see, the communion table, part of it, part of the dynamic was to break down the socioeconomic gender, any kind of prejudices there were. That's the beautiful thing about the Christian church. We come together, and I'm preaching extemporaneous, I got no notes, alright? We come together, understand this, and it breaks down walls of division. These are the inner attitudes we work with. This is where we get together, and, 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 and the great equalizer is the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for pride. There's no room for anyone to think they're better than anybody else. Please, this is one of the greatest blessings that ever came into my life when I became a Christian. I found out I'm just part of society. I'm not the center of it anymore. It's a beautiful thing to be set free of yourself. Only Christ could do that. Christ did that for me. This text that we read gives us six elements, which I'm going to go over. I'll gloss over. I'm not going to spend too much time on each one of them. But how we should examine ourselves, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to come together and, and, and have communion. Now, communion we're going to have today, now we have in our churches today in America for the last better part of the last 1,500 years, is not what it was when Paul wrote this. Every service, every time they got together, guess what they always did? They ate. It wasn't a regular church service like this. It was at someone's house, usually a wealthier person within the congregation who had the gift of hospitality and mercy would open up their house and most likely they would provide the food or other people would come. But most of the people that were sitting there getting drunk earlier on and eating all the food were wealthy people. They didn't have to work. So they would show up to the meeting, what? Early. But the people who had to labor all day in the field, the other believers who were on the lower spectrum of the socioeconomic sphere, understand, they came later. And when they came later at the end of the day, guess what? There was nothing there. They didn't have a glass of wine to share. They had no food to share. There were divisions, as Paul says. I hear there's divisions. Now there's a pecking order going on. And, and people weren't, weren't being fed, not just physically, they weren't being fed emotionally. When we come together, it's not about just the three people you want to say hello to. We're all one family. We should know as many people in the local church as possible. We're not a large congregation. There is no reason we cannot know each other on a first name basis. There is no reason that everyone in this church can't spend a little quality time with each other. That's what it's about. That's the Lord's Supper. 
over the centuries, it's turned into something very formal, communion. But the principle remains the same. We're blessed at this church because we we have communion once a month, but we have fellowship from the first service we ever had after every service. We have fellowship upstairs. We are blessed to be able to do that. We're blessed that we can afford to do it. We're blessed that so many people help out in this area. We're blessed that so many people hang around and do that. Sometimes you can't do it all the time. But it is something God smiles down upon and God absolutely loves. And please understand something. There is a spiritual blessing attached. I will get into verse 17 later on. There's a spiritual blessing attached to this kind of fellowship. There's six things. There is the new relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ we'll speak about. Then there's the new relationship we have with one another because of our relationship with God. Then there's this one new hope until he returns again. Do you know there's only one hope unfulfilled in all the Bible? The second coming of Christ. Do you know there's believers in heaven right now? That are still hoping for something. You think when you got to heaven, hope is over, right? Probably nobody thinks this way but me and John and a couple other people. But they're not in their glorified bodies yet. And they still have to wait for the second coming of Christ. There's still hope in heaven. They're still waiting for the second return of Christ. You and I are waiting for one thing. One thing. The second return of Jesus Christ. We are to encourage each other because we're all in a holding pattern. All of us. And we all have to stand before the Lord. And we are to encourage each other as we see that day drawing nearer to love and good works. We are to help each other in this hope. Not getting drunk Not eating the food, not being emotionally supportive, not being spiritually supportive, not treating people like they don't don't count, they're on a lower spectrum. No, 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 no. God brings a diversity of people together. Guess what? It glorifies him. I've been speaking about this. But it also will test our own inner attitudes and motives and agendas of our heart. And that's where God resides. So I will be speaking about that hope. And I'll be speaking about the place of attitude, of self-evaluation, which is a proper worship to God. And of course, how God presides over it. He's watching over our inner inner attitudes. I hope that scares you a little bit. Paul wrote... 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in a, in a sarcastic dialogue, or monologue, I should say. Paul often uses sarcasm to make a point. And he wanted those Corinthians to know, and he wants us to know, that he is, has jurisdiction over the way we think about each other. I love it. Because we all fail. And we all have to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And we all have to examine ourselves. We all have to make sure our hearts are right before God. And what does that mean? That you're going to wake up one day and not have one ill thought towards another human being? No. But you will take 
accountability for the ill thought that you have towards the brother and sister and say, God, help me in this area. Whatever you do, do not let me die with these ineratitudes. That's Christianity. This formality, just coming up and getting a piece of bread. Oh, that's, you know something? I think that's wearing on God. Do you know that wears on God? Do you know Jesus rebuked the Pharisees? Do you know the, the prophets rebuked the people in the Old Testament for constantly coming with their sacrifices and offering praise with their mouth while their heart was far away from him? This is where the, mother, the rubber meets the road. This is Christianity. If it doesn't work here, how can we make any difference in the world? How can we truly be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? I wrestle with the flesh all week. Anybody here wrestling? Are you wrestling with your tongue? Are you wrestling with your eyes? Are you wrestling with your thoughts? Is Satan attacking you? You got hard people in your life? The last, when I come here, this has got to be a refuge. I know what, I'm busy fighting all week out there. When I come here, I want to put my shoulders to come down and say, praise God. How are you doing, brother? How, what's going on over here? I want to, let's encourage each other. If I got to come here and fight them, this is going to be rough. And I will speak about how Christ through his spirit nourishes the true believer. Before I go on, let it be said here. There is nothing in these verses for the false believer. There's no hope. To continually eat the body and the blood of the Lord and not be saved is brutal. It's brutal. When we take communion, please, if you don't know you're saved, if you're not water baptized, if you haven't sat down with a pastoral elderly team to find out the condition of your soul, please, I ask you to do two things. Do not take the body and the blood and see me and John after the meeting because God wants you to partake. He wants you to be there. He wants you to be in. And this is not about perfection. This is about a, a, a healthy judgment of what's taking place in your own heart. Amen? Let's go to our text. Paul says here in verse 17, but in the following instructions I do not commend you. He's not happy. His whole attitude has changed in 1 Corinthians over here. 1 Corinthians is written to a church that was so gifted, so blessed, so encouraged by God, but they were a mess. They were a mess. There was all sorts of sin taking place within the church. There's all sorts of inner attitudes taking place within the church. There's so much division taking place in the church. And what Paul does, he's trying to troubleshoot the whole thing. He's a pastor now. He's not a theologian. He's putting on his robes, his shepherding robes, and he's shepherding the sheep. He's putting things in place. He's reprioritizing their life. This has only happened twice in all of Scripture. In all of Scripture, you only see two real substantial teachings 
teachings on communion, the body and the blood. It's found here, and it's found in John 13. Pastor John's been going on on that. When he spoke about getting down and washing the disciples' feet, he broke the bread, he gave thanks. If you read that in the Gospel of John, you're going to miss out on something that was taking place. You have to go to Luke to find out. Guess what was going on when he was washing their feet? They were grumbling and murmuring and complaining about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he goes, you want to know who the greatest in the kingdom of God is? I'll show you. I'm going to get on my feet, I'm going to wash your feet, and guess what? Blessed are you who do so yourself. The two times communion is really spoken about, it's this competitive spirit that goes on between believers. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians. It was unfortunately taking place with the apostles. And Jesus showed you, you want to be great? I'll show you how to be great. I'll get on my feet, and I'll, I'll get on my knees, and I'll wash your feet. The Corinthians were blessed. They had the power gifts. They walked in signs and wonders. They spoke in tongues. They had interpretations. They healed the sick. But they couldn't get along with each other. So Paul's not happy. This man is not happy. He says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I can't commend you. It's impossible to commend you. On this issue, not all issues, but on this issue, this is what he's saying. Because when you come together, it's not for the better. Guess what? When we come together, what should it be for? The better. When we eat together, it should be for the better, not for the worst. You see, there is a blessing attached when we come together with the right attitude. When we partake of the body and the blood of the Lord. 2,000 years ago, at the end of a service, they would eat. And in the eating, they would take time to give thanks to God. Like Jesus did at the Last Supper. We formalized it over the last 1,500 years. And we partake of the host. We partake of the body and the blood. In a very formal manner. But really what we're saying, we're giving thanks to God for all things. But how can we bring a gift to God when our hearts are not right within us? This is one of the most searching sermons you could ever find from any minister of the gospel anywhere. This is coming down, right down, eyeball to eyeball, and God is looking at every believer face to face and saying, take a good look at your heart, tell me what's going on. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Divisions in the church. That breaks a pastor's heart. That breaks my heart. Clicks in the Christian church. It should, it's an oxymoron. It shouldn't exist whatsoever. You and I have to do everything we can to make sure I don't fall into a click because it's easy. It's easy to find you, you know, you get your five, six people you like. And no. You have to make sure when you come here, you touch everybody's life. Everyone has to feel important. Everybody has to know they belong. Everybody has to know they're welcomed. She goes on in verse 19, for when, for when, 
For there must be factions among you. This is a text, this is a verse of scripture that could be, how can I say, a little bit confusing. For there must be factions among you. I would say, why, Paul? He says this, in order that those who are genuine among you will be wrecked. Listen, I'm a pastor. There's nothing sweeter to see a genuine believer. There is nothing better when you see someone who loves Christ because he loves, they love Christ people. That never could touch my soul. It couldn't touch Paul's heart. It didn't touch, nothing could touch Jesus' heart more than when people generally are concerned the best they can for one another. He goes, when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. The Lord's Supper should be the priority. Fellowship should be a priority. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. When we come to the table to partake of the body and the blood of the Lord, please understand something. You and I do not exist. There's no Brian Martin, there's no John Verdi, there's no Jason, there's no Meg, there's no, it's one body, corporate, period, that is it. I am not so important that I'm the first one to eat. I should be the first one to serve. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another one gets drunk. It's all about me. This is great. Christianity is great. You go there and exercise selfishness all you want. Listen to verse 22. Look at verse 22 up there. I think that's 23. Listen to, listen to the first word, exclamation point. What? This is Paul's sarcasm. You have to know Paul. He's like, are you out of your mind? Are you serious? I can't even fathom this. You're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. People are coming, they're hungry, there's nothing left over for them. And I love his sarcasm. Do you not have houses to eat or drink? <laughs> Do you despise the church of God? This is his house. Are you going to humiliate those who have nothing? Do you know what it's like to be loved? Honestly. I'm a man that knows what it's like to be loved. My wife loves me. I know know a woman's touch. I know affection for my brother-in-law, from the congregation. Do you know how many people come to church and others don't even know their name? Don't even know their name. There are some people that have never been held or might not have been held for decades and hugged and experienced someone's genuine concern for them who have nothing. That's what Paul's saying. They have nothing. They labor all day. They come to church. And the one place they should be accepted and loved is the church. And guess what? They're not even getting it here. Listen to the sarcasm. This is an eye-open experience. 
You're humiliating those who have nothing. Let everybody in our, let everybody feast, let everybody drink, let everybody be touched, let everybody be welcomed, let everybody know that it's a special place for them. What shall I say? Shall I commend you for this? He goes, no, I will not. What a sharp rebuke. And now he segues into something. Listen how he just segues into the Lord's Supper. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. Only Paul says this. That the Lord Jesus on the night, what? Do you ever take time to think about that? I'll paraphrase. The Lord Jesus, on the worst night of his life, and the worst night that ever existed in humanity, he took bread and gave thanks. Good Friday, there is no other night ever, ever like it. There has been no greater betrayal than that of Christ. On this worst night that ever existed, Christ gave thanks. Do you want to take your personal pet peeves and go up against that? Do you think there's anything in your life that says, yeah, but you know, someone, someone dissed me. You want to take it up with Jesus on the worst night? Do you want to compete with this worst night? Do you possibly think anything has ever been done to you or me within the Christian church that can compete with this betrayal? Absolutely not. Absurd. Totally. Forget about it. It's not even on the radar. Don't even bring it before the Lord. The worst night of the entire existence of humanity, Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he gave thanks to God. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Understand something. When Jesus says it in John, when he says it at the Passover, when he says it at the last supper, what Paul says here, the word you is corporate. It's not individual. You might as well say he gave it for use. All of it. That's my Brooklyn crown. Remember, they ate every service. And it was all done to do this in remembrance of me. If I could take these words, these six words, do this in remembrance of me, and stick it into your mind. If the Holy Spirit can tattoo that phrase in remembrance of me into your mind and into your heart, that every time you're around another human being, especially every time you're around another Christian, remember he did this, and we remember in remembrance of what he did. That's my rule of my thumb. That's how I live my Christian life. I live my, I wish I could tell you I'm always passing. In remembrance.
remembrance of me. If you leave anything here today, that should be deep within your soul, in remembrance of me. Please understand something. Where and when we ever struggle with interpersonal attitudes with each other, there's only one hope. Don't promise yourself out of it. To say, Lord, help me in remembrance of you. Help me, Father, in remembrance of you. In remembrance of you. That's it, Father. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Guess what? In remembrance of me. You know something? no idea of how incredible God is. The world has no idea. We take God for such a Christian can take God for granted. We think I'm forgiven, like you're entitled to be forgiven. Do you know that God owes you and me one thing? He owes us justice and that's it. That's it. If you're here today and you think God's giving you something because you deserve it, let me give you a little intel. You deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And if you have hope and you pray, you, do, you depend on God. He's been good to you. Understand something. He's been good to you because Christ broke his body at Calvary. That's what Paul means to be in Christ. First Ephesians chapter 1. You're in Christ. We're in the beloved. Because there's nothing lovable in us. Get a hold of that revelation. Get a hold of it. You and I are here today. I got hope tonight. I know I got a couple things going on. I'm loving the Lord. But you know why I'm loving the Lord? Because he broke his body. I'm in the new covenant. The new covenant didn't come with the sprinkling of the blood of oxen and goats on Mount Sinai. The giving of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Trinity in our heart, the giving of hope and peace and joy and sound mind and, and eternal hope, understand something, is because Christ died at Calvary. A horrible death. And he tasted hell for all of us. This cup of the new, this cup of the new covenant in his blood our joy. Does anybody have any hope and peace in that? Is anybody happy to forgive an answer? What, what happy moment did you have this week? I'll give you a couple of mine. I screwed up again and guess what? I went to God for forgiveness. Guess what he did? Yeah, and guess what he did after that? And he loved me. And I felt his presence and tears of joy rolled down my face. Do you know why? Not because there was a bull sacrificed. It's because his son was sacrificed. There's nothing else. Me and my wife went out, and guess what? When I apologized because I was wrong, I'm usually wrong. And then we prayed, and God's peace and his presence was there. Guess what? Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because without that, there's no Holy Spirit. Without the shed blood of Christ, there is no Holy Spirit. 
There is no closeness with God. The Old Testament saint really never understood what forgiveness was. They never understood the presence of God. The only time they had a, a, a snippet of understanding the presence of God if they got close to the tabernacle or they got close to the, uh, to the temple on the Day of Atonement when the, the high priest went in and made atonement for the nation, there was a sense and awareness of the presence of God. But I had that this morning. When I put the worship music on, I was driving the car. I was like, praise God, man. Praise God. Why? I deserve it? Absolutely not. But why? I'm in the beloved. I'm in Christ. He gave his body. He gave his blood. The new covenant has come. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And now we have hope and we have joy and we have peace. Now we're going to argue with that. How can we not say, God, change me on the inside? And that's what Paul is saying over here. He's, he's laying it on thick. I'm laying it on thick. You know why? Because that's what Paul's doing here in between his sarcasm. He's going, I can't believe what's taking place. God has blessed that church so wonderfully, saying, but I can't commend you on this. I can commend you on a lot of things, but when you come together, I can't commend you. You missed the whole point. He says, I will not commend you. Does it hurt? Before I preached it, I got to live it. He goes on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup, oh, let me go back to 26, and proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. There should be one future thought, one future hope for all believers. It should supersede every other hope you have. You have a hope for a better job, that's wonderful. You should be hoping about the second coming of Christ. You have a hope for a family, that's wonderful. You should be hoping about the second coming of Jesus Christ. You're hoping for better health, you're hoping for this, you're hoping for that. Those are wonderful, but nothing should supersede the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the hope we encourage each other for and to hold on to because you know what the Bible says not everyone has faith and many people fall away and many many people aren't steadfast until the end so that they can be saved perseverance is one of the main issues of the Christian church to preach it in such a way that we hold on firm when until the end until he comes Listen to how God's watching the whole thing now. Listen to Paul's reason. 27 to 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. (laughs) You don't want to be guilty. Concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? He goes on to say, let a person examine himself. Examine his inner attitudes. Concerning... If you're the one getting drunk before other people come, if you're not saving something for other people, you're not concerned about other people, you're only concerned about your own stomach, that's what he's saying. Let a person examine himself, that so then, so he eat, and, I'm sorry, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, and all that simply means is this. Lord, where's, where's my heart with, with my brothers and sisters? 
Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. He goes, listen, you're going to bring your offering to the the Lord? Remember that? He goes, before you do that, let me give you a hand. If your brother has something against you, get right with your brother. And then come bring your offering to God. Because it's acceptable. You think God's concerned about me? Oh, here I am. Here's my tithe. Here's my offering. And oh, I'm preaching a good message, but I'm hating the congregation. You think God's concerned about that? God's concerned about what's going on. The jurisdiction, listen to this. Listen to the jurisdiction that God has over the human heart. Let a person examine himself. That's worship. It's worship. As a matter of fact, I'll make a point. It's the sweetest worship. Because you know what happens as a Christian when you examine yourself and you find yourself guilty? Guess who's there to comfort you? Immediately. Guess who's there to rush in a flood of tears? Of his great love for us. There's nothing like calling yourself out and saying, God, I failed, man. I think Paul doesn't say, do not take. He says simply, just examine yourself. You know why? We all need to partake in the body and the blood. Because after we all examine ourselves, we see things that aren't good. This is not a moral issue. This is not about, did you have lust in your eyes? It has nothing to do with that. Don't you even examine yourself on that. This is how are we thinking about each other. And he goes on to say this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, if we have some kind of cavalier attitude of the body and the blood you know just blowing smoke up people's behinds and we're just flowing around as though we're super this and we're eating the body and the blood oh yeah give me that piece of bread give me that wine let me tell you something that's a serious crime that's a crime that's not my words for anyone who eats and drinks without the sun you can eat and drink but just check your motives Discern your heart. What's going on? You have anybody? Get right with somebody. Get right with your heart with God first. Then get right with your brother. You can eat and drink. It's okay. But get right with God. This is not a party. He goes on to say this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Is that the God of grace? I hope so. And I'll tell you why I hope so. God has to make a point. The church is God's household. And we've got to honor God by honoring each other. We have to honor each other. We have to nurture each other. We've got to care for each other. We've got to make sure that nobody feels left behind in the church. Nobody. That's a strong statement. And I won't say one other word. Let it speak for itself. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Meaning, you know, Lord, I, I got things going on. Please forgive me. I hate myself. These things keep, help me with this. You know, let me examine myself. You know, so when I partake of the body, you know, blood, it's not like I'm perfect. But I perfectly examined myself. Perfectly examine yourself. That's all. Just perfectly examine yourself. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. But when we are judged, listen. But when we are judged by the Lord, I'm going to paraphrase. But when we are judged by the Lord, and we are weak, physically, and when we are judged by the Lord, and we are ill, physically, 
And when we are judged by the Lord to the point of even dying, judged by the Lord, God will bring death on his children. Listen, we're disciplined. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. What does that mean? I know you're confused. You know what the difference between how God judges the world and God disciplines his children? You know what the difference is? Motive. God will judge a believer the same way he'll judge a non-believer. But the difference is he'll judge you to make you like Christ. He'll judge you to bring a greater character into your life. The non-believer, it's vengeance. Retribution. Not so with the believer. God loves us. And God will bring hardships in our life. So we can get to the root of the problem. And guess what the root of the problem is? Us. Our hearts. So Paul ends with this. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat or drink, wait for one another. Be kind to one another. Be compassionate to one another. Put other people first. The body and the blood in the Christian service is not individualistic. It's community through and through. If anyone is hungry, he gives a little advice here. Eat at home. That's Paul's sarcasm. <laughs> so that when you come together, it's not for judgment. You will see a lot of ministers never preach on this text. First of all, they don't understand the text. And if a minister is always trying to make everybody feel good, let's go to church so we can feel good. I can live in sin and God still loves me. I can have hatred in my heart and God's going to still bless me. See, if I do that week in and week out, I can't go to that text. I sound like a hypocrite because I'm misrepresenting God. That's why when we go through the Bible verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and book by book, we start to understand who God really is. Father, we love you and we praise you, God. And I thank you, O God, that you allow us to examine ourselves in the light of remembrance of Christ's broken body, shed blood, the new covenant, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the giving of power and of joy and of happiness, Father God, and uh, eternal life within us, the hope of glory, Christ in us, Father God, this wonderful pledge and this wonderful guarantee of the new covenant, which is the deposit of the Holy Spirit within us, Father God. God, let us examine ourselves.